Good morning. My name is Aubrey. I am uh, the pa- one of the pastors here at the Church of the Incarnation, and I'm very glad to be here with you today. We've been going through the book of Acts, this part of the Bible that tells the story of the origins of Christianity. Our scripture reading this morning is from Acts chapter 17, and it tells the story of the Apostle Paul in the city of Athens, which was at that time the intellectual and the cultural capital of the world. Look what it says in verse 16, Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he's waiting for his colleagues, Silas and Timothy. Paul's been going. He was in Macedonia. Um, They've been sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Um, The pattern develops. They go to a town. They talk. They have some success. Then uh, there's pushback, and lives are threatened And Paul scurries out of town under threat for his life. And so he's done this multiple times, and he's been kind of bootlegged around that part of the world. And they they got him out of Macedonia down to Athens. And he's there, and he's waiting on his colleagues who've been traveling around with him, Timothy and Silas. What I want you to notice is what he does while he's waiting and where he is. When he's waiting, he's in the great university city of the ancient world. What does he do in Athens? He doesn't act like a tourist. He doesn't go seeing the sites, the building, the the monuments that were without rival in the Greco-Roman Empire. He doesn't do that. He, He doesn't linger in the marketplace with all of its porticos painted by famous Artist. He could have listened to the debates of the statesmen and the philosophers. Remember, Paul was well-educated, and many people would say that he had an intellect on par with Plato. This is no second-rate intellect. What does he do? None of that impresses him. He's not spellbound by the architecture or the history or the wisdom of the city. No, what captures Paul's attention? The idols. Look again at verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, he was greatly distressed as he saw that the city was full of idols. That last phrase, full of idols. It's a word in Greek. This part of the Bible was originally written in Greek. We have Greek manuscripts, the original language of this part, that phrase, it gives the sense that the city is under the idols. It's a word picture. Some translate it that a forest of idols has grown up and over and around the city. Xenophon, he was a famous student of Socrates. He was a historian. He was a soldier. He was from Athens. He once wrote that Athens is simply one great altar. There are more gods in Athens than all the rest of the country. He said, quote, it is easier to find in Athens a god than a man. (laughs) Another way you can capture what Paul is saying here is that you could say Athens is submerged 
in idols. And notice how this affected Paul. Again, it says in verse 16, he was greatly distressed as he saw that the city was full of idols. It's not that he lost his temper. No, this word, um, it's in the imperfect tense. Okay, so the, the idea is that there's this growing reaction in him. This growing, continuous, settled reaction. It's an interesting word. This word that's used to describe how he responds to all of this forest of idols. It's this word in, that, that, that in the Greek language, it, it, our word paroxima comes from it. It's this word that is used throughout the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So Paul grew up a Jew. He would have grown up on this side of Alexander the Great, so on this side of Hellenism. So the Greek language has become, in many ways, the lingua franca. So he grew up reading the Old Testament in a translation just like we read it. We read it in an English translation. He was reading it in a Greek translation. And this word that describes this deep distress he's feeling, it's a word that's used throughout the Old Testament for what God feels about idols And it's often translated jealousy. That's interesting. Jealousy. So, for example, when the Israelites make a golden calf at Mount Sinai after Yul Brynner brings them across the Red Sea, (laughs) after the Exodus, the Bible says that God's reaction was jealousy. He was jealous of the golden calf that his people were worshiping. Listen to Exodus chapter 34, verse 14. You shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Now, this is confusing for us because most of us have grown up with one sense of the word jealous, And it's negative. Jealousy is bad. We tend to think that jealousy is always wrong. But it's not. You see, if jealousy is good or bad, is determined by if the thing you're jealous of deserves to be there or not. If you're jealous of someone who threatens to outshine you intellectually or athletically or with fame or your beauty, if you're jealous of a competitor in that category, that's wrong. It's a sin because you can't claim a monopoly on beauty or intelligence or athletic ability. But... What if a third party enters my marriage? The jealousy of the injured person who is being displaced in that situation is righteous. Because the intruder has no right to be there. 
It's the same with God. Listen to what it says in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will give my glory to, an, to no one else. I will not give my praise to idols. Our creator and redeemer has a right to exclusive allegiance from all humans, in all tribes, in all ethnic groups, in all religions, and all of creation. And he is jealous if any human transfers allegiance to anything else. So, going back to what Paul felt as he looked around Athens, it's not about a bad temper, and it's not about pity for the Athenians' ignorance. It's not even about fear for their eternal salvation. What Paul feels is hatred toward idolatry. Because he's jealous for the name of God. He saw human beings giving idols the honor and the glory which is only due the one and only living God. Paul's reaction to this idolatry is profoundly negative. Jealousy. Hatred. A deep distress. By the way, it's the same word. That was used a couple of chapters before for his fight with Barnabas. Remember I said veins bulging, face red. This is the second occurrence of that word in the book of Acts. But this time, the narrative context deems it appropriate. Interesting, isn't it? Paul has grown up. Using his emotions rightly now. But his reaction isn't just negative. It's not just horror and dismay. He also has a positive and constructive reaction. He doesn't just throw up his hands in in despair or weep or get mad. No, he does something positive. He shares the good news of Jesus. So his reaction is not only this inward feeling that's so intense, he also goes outward with his reaction. How? The Bible says, be angry and sin not. What does this anger inside of him do? It leads to him sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. He tries to get them to turn from their idols to the living God and so to give God, the Father and His Son, Jesus, the glory that is due their name. His motivation here is pretty interesting. We live in a day where comparative religious studies And shame over the negative aspects of colonialism and the collapse of modernity's confidence in anything universal, especially universal claims to truth coming from religions. We live in a day where those three things, the the history of colonialism, comparative religious studies, and and the disbelief of any claim to overarching truth, those three things have produced in our day A deep discomfort with evangelism, with mission. So that in some parts of the world and the church, evangelism and mission sound like colonialism, like ethnocentrism. It sounds arrogant. It smacks of a lot of negative stuff. But we're a church that holds the ancient 
orthodox Christian view that Jesus Christ alone is the Savior, and it takes a preacher to understand that. That's what Paul says in Romans. How will they know unless they're told? How will they be told unless a preacher is said? We, we hold this very unorthodox view that this super weird thing we're doing right now, right? So weird what, what's happening right now. A really good-looking man <laughs> is standing in front of a room that's sitting with postures of humble receptivity to pronouncements of truth. That's a strange view we hold. What motivates us to share the good news of Jesus Christ? Some people are motivated by obedience, right? The last thing Jesus said was, go and tell this message. Obedience is a strong and solid incentive. Some people are motivated by an even stronger factor, compassion. Compassion is a stronger motivator than obedience. We should be motivated to share the good news of Jesus by our love for people who don't know him. And and, and because they don't know him, they are alienated from the creator. They're disoriented. They're lost. But what we're seeing in Acts chapter 17 is the highest incentive of all. Jealousy for the glory of Jesus Christ. God has promoted Jesus to the supreme place of honor. In order that every knee will bow. And every tongue confess and acknowledge His lordship. Whenever he is denied his rightful place in people's lives, we should feel inwardly wounded. A friend of mine has a brother who is the pastor of um, a very influential church in Norfolk, Virginia. While they were teenagers, my friend said of his brother, that one day their dad had gone out of town on a trip. And when dad comes home, mom tells dad, this son of whom I'm speaking uh, snuck out of the house. And when I asked him about it, he uh, denied it, but I know he did. And so dad took the family out. They went out to eat that night. And the dad um, asked the son, so how, how did it go last night? Did you get good sleep? And the son said, yeah, yeah, everything was fine. And um, dad didn't say anything. And Then when they got home, the dad asked the son to meet him in the garage. And um, I won't tell you all of which occurred, but he said to the son, you lied to me. And lying to me is dishonorable because I'm your father. You violated your mother's trust and you disobeyed God by not honoring your parents. But you dishonored my wife. And hence the um, next thing that occurred. (laughs) I've always thought about that's a strange thing. Thinking through how I think about my own children and my own actions in my family. I think all of us can identify some point in our life where we've had righteous indignation. 
And if a man can be riled up over his spouse being dishonored, where is our jealousy for the name of Christ today? The great Anglican priest and missionary to India and Persia, Henry Martin, once said, I could not endure existence if Jesus was not glorified. It would be hell to me if he were to be always dishonored. So Paul saw idolatry and he felt jealousy. And what did he do? He shared the gospel first in the synagogue. That's what it says in verse 17. And then in the marketplace, he, he seems to have adopted um, the, the posture of Athens' most famous citizen, Socrates. He, is, he seemed to have gone into the park marketplace and developed a Socratic dialogue. But he had a better gospel than Socrates ever had. And then in verse 18, he begins to talk not with the marketplace people, but with the philosophers Apparently, he had a a remarkable ability to navigate all three worlds. And then something happens. Something we should be used to by now in the book of Acts. The person who is sharing the good news of Christ is threatened. Look at verse 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, why does this babbler, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, what you need to know is if if you had some historical context, you would see that in this passage I just read was a threat and an insult. First, the insult. Look what they call him. They call him what? A babbler. This is a slang term in that moment in Athens. It's a a word that literally means seed picker. They used it to describe the type of birds that would walk around on the ground picking up seeds. When it was turned into slang... It was used to describe homeless people who would get scraps of food from the gutter. But multiple Epicurean and Stoic philosophers in their writings use it with condescension for barstool philosophers, academic posers, people who don't know the primary sources well, people who sit in the marketplace and pick up this little piece of academic knowledge in this little piece and they don't really understand them and they string them together and they don't have any original thoughts. This is the intellectual magpie. They're insulting him. And the threat. See the last half of verse 18? He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Exact quote from the charges laid against Socrates. Word for word. Preacher of foreign divinities. And do you know Socrates' state of life after his trial? He drank the hemlock 
So when it says in verse 19, they took hold of him, they seized him, and they brought him to the Areopagus. The Areopagus, it's a double entendre. It means both the hill, Mars Hill, the place um, there, and it also means the Supreme Council of Athens. May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. Look, that is the sneer of a judge that has just mentioned treason. They seized him. They brought him to the Supreme Council, the governing body. So we get to verse 22. Paul standing in the midst, right? We've seen this earlier in Acts. Standing in the midst of judges. And what remarkable courage. It is hard to imagine a less receptive, more condescending audience that has the power to execute him for the charges they're accusing him of. So what does Paul say in this moment? What does he say to the highest court in the land, to the greatest academics of the day? Well, first of all, starting in verse 22 and going all the way down to verse 29, he's carefully and with great nuance identifying aspects of Epicurean philosophy, Stoic philosophy, and actually a third, academic philosophy. Academic is it's the group of philosophers that came out of Plato, the Academy. It's their philosophy. They were, they were cultured agnostics. They said, well, we don't really know if there's this God and all this kind of stuff. Probably is, but we don't know for sure. So what he does is he takes various elements of all three strands of philosophy. And and look, it's not philosophy like it is today. Oftentimes today when you hear the word philosophy, I know you just think wonderful things, right? Wouldn't anybody want to read that stuff? No, these are three fundamental primary competing views for how to live life. Total way of life systems. And what he does in the majority of his sermon is he takes insights each of those systems has and he recontextualizes them within the framework of Christianity and he acknowledges that there is truth all over this world. And he says all truth is God's truth. And and with great nuance and with great care, we don't have time to go through all. It's really remarkable. He affirms them. He does it in a rather snarky way, but I I can't show you all of that now. I'll just tell you that word, word, you're very religious. It's, um, It's got a dual meaning in Greek. It can either mean you have deep respect for the gods, or it could be pejorative, you're superstitious. You're like um, backwoods, superstitious hillbillies. So um, anyway, but he, he, he compliments them tongue-in-cheek. And then when you get to verse 30, he shifts gears. And he says something that is stunning to everyone listening. In verse 30, he turns a corner in his speech. And he says that God has set a time when he is going to do what the Jewish tradition has always said he would do. 
God has determined a moment when he will do what he must do if he is indeed the good and wise creator. It's this. He will set the world right. Call it to account. He will judge it in the full Hebraic biblical sense. And the creator God will do this through a particular man whom he's appointed for the task, Jesus Christ. And the reason we can know that this will happen is because he raised Jesus from the dead. Listen to verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. And look, when Paul uses the word judge here, he means set it right. He means defend the orphan. He means recalibrate all of the injustices. He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And and of this, he's given assurance to us all by raising him from the dead. Now, it's helpful to know at this point that in the Areopagus, this notion of resurrection was ludicrous. Every sensible person in that group knew without question that resurrection does not occur. And furthermore, not only was it nonsensical to their system of rationality, it also went directly against the founding charter of the Areopagus. You see, five centuries before this, Aeschylus wrote a play, the great Greek dramatist. And this was well known in Paul's day. And in this play, Apollo, the god Apollo, inaugurates the court of the Areopagus. And listen what he says in the, in the charter to the Areopagus. This is a quote from Aeschylus. When a man dies and his blood is spilled on the ground, there is no resurrection. So the very concept of resurrection is ruled out by the charter, the ground rules of the Areopagus. But Paul says the resurrection of Jesus is the fulcrum around which the entire world and all of history turns. Listen again to verse 31. He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Notice it's the last thing he says. The last word he utters is resurrection. And then the very next word, when they heard of the resurrection, they that it's like the bomb in the room. Up until then, he's, he's with great skill and tremendous intellect. He is navigating the most sophisticated philosophical systems of the day. And then he says God is going to sort out the whole world. And we know this Because Jesus was raised from the dead. Now pay attention here. It is not that the resurrection proves Jesus' divinity. It's not that the resurrection of Jesus is the way we know Jesus is God. That's not the point he's making. He is saying that with the resurrection of Jesus, God's new world has begun. Jesus' being raised from the dead is the start, the paradigm case, the foundation, the beginning of that great setting right 
that God is going to do for the whole cosmos. Cancer. He's going to set that right. Acts of moral evil. He's going to sort that out. All of this badness in the universe, he's going to sort it out. The risen body of Jesus is the one bit of the physical universe that has already been set right. Therefore, Jesus is the one through whom everything will be set right. That's the point Paul is making. And so in light of this, Paul says in verses 30 and 31, everyone, every tribe, every ethnic group, every religion, everyone must repent. To the Athenians, and to all of you, and to me, and to Hindus, and to Muslims, and to Buddhists, and to atheists, and to agnostics, to everyone, you must turn from your ways. You must turn to the living God. Abandon the parodies. Abandon the idols that get in the way and distract you from the true God. Let the light of the true God flood through your life and transform you. Leave the philosophies of the intelligentsia and the religious rubbish that humans manufacture. Just leave it behind. Because there is a living God and he is now calling everyone everywhere to himself. And what's the response to this? Verse 32, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we shall hear you again about this. Some of them just burst out laughing, which is probably what would happen if you could say this in many of the circles you run in, (laughs) right? That's a tough thing to deal with. Being thought little of. How would you respond? Professors at JMU, how would you respond if your reputation was you were an intellectual magpie? College students, high school students. If people at your lunch table laughed at you. If somebody looked at you and said, so what do you believe about transgender issues? about homosexual issues. What do you believe? What if, you know, not long ago, I was walking into a restaurant in town and a guy walked straight up to me. Aubrey, Supreme Court recent decision. What do you think about it? (laughs) I think this is the form of suffering and persecution that we are most facing right now in America. We're not at a place where our lives are on the line because of the good news of Jesus. We're very close to a moment, though, where we're going to start getting fired under the emerging speech codes, it seems. But even before that happens, and that might happen in the very near future, but even before then, the suffering that Christians face, especially in a university town, in educated circles, is the reaction Paul is getting here, condescending mockery. Being thought of as an academic poser, a hillbilly, unsophisticated. How do you respond to that kind of stuff? 
It's funny. Look at the second half of verse 18. He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. What are the two divinities they think he's preaching? Jesus, masculine in Greek, and resurrection, a feminine word in Greek. Their plausibility structure of polytheism caused them to hear when Jesus, when Paul said Jesus and the resurrection, their polytheistic framework made them think he was naming two new divinities. The male divinity, Jesus, and his female consort, resurrection. That's what plausibility structures do. That's what mental frameworks do. All, cult, all reason is cultured. The cultural conditioning on their reasonableness caused them to hear him when he said that. They thought, through a trick of grammar, that he was saying there's two gods you haven't heard about. One is Jesus and the other is resurrection. It's funny. We've seen one other time they were misunderstood. And it's when Paul was speaking to another non-Jewish group of people in Lystra. Both times Paul speaks to non-Jewish people, he's fundamentally misunderstood. In Lystra, they think he's presenting two old gods. And in Athens, they misunderstand him to be presenting two new gods. The reason I bring this up that this is what happens to us today on several fundamental key issues. The plausibility structure, the mental framework of our society mishears us. And through a trick of grammar turns our exclusivism into arrogance. Look, We live in this moment of religious pluralism. We live in this society that is convinced that when we claim to know that our religion is the truth, then we will automatically be closed-minded, dogmatic, and arrogant. And we will automatically treat non-believers badly. And we will deprive them of their goods and torture them and even kill them. But where are the, the empirical facts for that steadfast belief of our culture? Where are the studies that establish that. It has certainly not been proven that people without religious convictions are kind and tolerant. That they're less inclined to arrogance and cruelty than those who do have religious confidence. Christian exclusivism is the way to the most inclusive life possible. But when we say Jesus alone is the way and that all other religions must find the fulfillment in Christ and that apart from Christ there is no salvation, there is no setting of the world right. When we say that, when we claim that the Hindu must convert and the Buddhist must convert and the atheist must convert and the Muslim must convert and every tribe and every ethnic group and every person in this world must come to faith in Jesus Christ. When we claim that, we're heard as being arrogant. Here's something I read, a New York pastor by the name of Tim Keller. He said, look, 2,000 years ago, the world of the Roman Empire believed everyone had their own God. That's very open, isn't it? 
No one has the truth. Everybody has their own God. But the Christians came along and said, no, only we have the true God. So the Greco-Roman world had what looked like the tolerant worldview. And the Christians, at the point in the book of Acts and the centuries thereafter, had what looked like the more narrow worldview. But the way the Christians and the Greco-Romans lived was exactly the opposite. In the Greco-Roman world, the poor were despised. In the Christian world, the poor were loved. In the Greco-Roman world, women were looked down upon. In the Christian world, women were empowered. The Greco-Roman world kept the races and the classes apart. The Christian world brought them together, promiscuously, you could say. When the plagues came in the second century and people were dying in the cities and the streets were littered with people abandoned by their loved ones, it was the Christians who stayed. And in many cases, the Christians died caring for their pagan neighbors. So let's think about this. On the one hand, Christians had the absolute most narrow worldview because they thought they had the truth. But on the other hand, the Greco-Roman world said, we don't know who has the truth. Everybody's got their own. Now, why did the Christians live the most inclusive life? The most generous the most sacrificial, the most inclusive possible lifestyle because that's what comes out of this particular piece of exclusivity. Here's the issue. Exclusivism doesn't necessarily lead to intolerance, to terrorism, to arrogance. It all depends on what the actual exclusivistic belief we're talking about is. And if your exclusivistic belief is a man dying on a cross for his enemies. If the very heart of your self-image and your religion is a man sacrificing and praying for his enemies as he died at their hands and loving them, if that sinks all the way down into your heart of hearts, it will produce the kind of life the early Christians lived. The most inclusive life possible out of the most exclusive possible claim. That's the truth. The truth is a God who became weak and loved and died for the people who opposed them, forgiving him. Take that into the center of your heart and you will be at the heart of the solution the world needs. When Paul shared the good news of Jesus and the resurrection with the Athenians, they heard him through the lens of their polytheistic ears and through a trick of grammar. They thought he was talking about divine, two new divine beings. And when we share the full-on, unapologetic good news of Jesus Christ and the resurrection with our friends and our families and our neighbors and our work associates, we will be heard through the lens of a type of religious pluralism and through a trick of grammar that convinces them this is mean and unloving. How did Paul respond to being misunderstood? With the courage of refusing to back down. And the kindness 
of taking their belief systems seriously and of really naming the gospel as best he could so that they could hear it. Paul responded with courage and patience and skill. Perhaps we don't speak like Paul spoke because we don't feel like Paul felt. Divine jealousy stirring within us. We pray all the time, hallowed be your name. Do you mean that? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Is, that's the first thing. Do you, pray, do you mean that? Do you care when his name is not hallowed? And let's take it back one step further. If we don't speak like Paul because we don't feel like Paul, is it because we don't see like Paul? That's the order. He saw, then he felt the jealousy, then he spoke. It all begins with his eyes. When Paul is walking around Athens, he didn't just notice the idols. The Greek word used, it's used three times. It's in verse 16, it's in verse 22, and it's in verse 23. Thero. Thero. We get our word theorize. To look deeply at something. To look at it over and over and over and to think about it and think about it and think about it until the fires of holy indignation are kindled within us because he saw men and women created in the image of God, by God, giving idols the homage that's only due to God. Idols aren't limited only to primitive societies. We have many, many sophisticated idols today. An idol is anything you substitute for that which only God should get from you. Ultimate allegiance, ultimate love, and the trust that this is how life works. Any person or thing that occupies that place which God alone should occupy, that's an idol. Ideologies can be idols. Fame, wealth, power, sex, food, alcohol, drugs, parents, spouses, children, recreation, exercise, possessions. May the Lord help us to see Harrisonburg clearly so that we can feel correctly and speak with confidence. Let's pray. Father, have mercy on us and help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand.